You're going to turn your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 25. We're going to be starting with verse 31. Matthew 25, verse 31. So we're on this whole series about how we're called to bear witness to Christ. And if we're going to bear witness to Christ and what God is doing in this world, we need to understand what we believe, and we need to understand why it is that we believe it. And so over the past you know, month or so, we've been wrestling with the reality of evil in the world. And we've asked questions about God's goodness and God's love and God's power in light of the fact that we see that the world is a broken place. It's, we, we look around and, and the world is just messed up. There, there are uh, people who are suffering and go through pain. There are people who commit enormous atrocities. There's immense evil in the world. And we're asking the questions about what God is going to do about it. And so we've said that the Bible speaks of God's judgment and punishment for evil. And today we're going to continue that question. We're going to be asking about the nature of divine punishment. And I'm going to take a few moments just to remind us where we were last week, because last week we covered a lot of ground and we need to, to be refreshed, all right? So again, if you have questions about um, you know, what we talked about in previous weeks, all those sermons are online. There are sermon notes there. There are additional resources. If, if, you, would, um, if you need those, you can get in touch with me. I, I, can, I can point you in directions of where you can take this study further. But, but so far over the last several weeks, we've talked about the reality of evil, and we've talked about God's justice. We've said that God is the just judge of humanity, that God will always do what's right, and that ultimately God will set things right. One of the key themes of justice, especially in the Old Testament, is God looking out for the poor and the orphan and the widow and those people who are easily taken advantage of, those people who are, who are being oppressed, right? God says, I'm not going to allow that to continue. As part of his love and justice, he's going to set those things right. And we've seen that God will punish those who do evil, that there is, that there is a penalty for wrongdoing, right? We discussed last week that there are three views about the ultimate state of affairs, like what, what's going to happen, right? And these three different views are, are held by different um, variations of, or I should say, uh, different groups within Christianity, right? Like these, these are views that, that people aren't just making up, they're trying to support from the, the biblical text, all right? So the, the first view would be called universalism. And this is the idea that all people are eventually going to turn from evil and that they're going to spend eternity in fellowship with God, all right? So these people would use passages like every knee will bow and every tongue will confess from Philippians 2. Or, or take the idea of all things being reconciled to God through Christ, right? And so they will argue from Scripture that ultimately everyone is going to spend eternity in fellowship with God. The second view, which is also very, very popular today, is called annihilationism. Uh, don't get hung up by the big words here. Um, this is the view that ultimately if people do not repent, if they don't turn from evil, that God will take those people out of existence. They will be annihilated. They will exist no more. They will just be removed. Now, there are different forms of this. Some people teach that this happens at death, that there's this ultimate judgment, and that person just ceases to exist at death. Other people will say that there is some form of, of punishment, um, that there is some kind of conscious 
suffering that is inflicted upon them for their wrongdoing. But at some point, God does not allow that to go on for eternity, but he uh, just annihilates them. He takes them out of existence. They, lo- they cease to exist, all right? So again, very, very popular. And, and the people who teach this view would look at passages in Scripture that talk about death as the wages for sin and the idea of the coming destruction. And they would interpret that idea of destruction as being annihilated or removed from existence, all right? Third um, is the more traditional view, maybe the one that you're familiar with, would be eternal punishment. It's that those who do not turn from evil will experience punishment for eternity. Just, it's not a big word, eternal punishment. We all get what those words mean, so it's not a, like, um, not, doesn't require a lengthy explanation here. But, but those who don't turn from evil will ultimately be punished for eternity. All right, so <clears throat> we were asking these questions last week, and we, we've seen that there is punishment. Like, it's at least clear that there's punishment, right? And so what is the nature of that punishment? Uh, what is the final state of those who reject God? And which of these three views best represents the teaching of Scripture? All right, so these, these are the questions that we're trying to address. And last week specifically, we did a deep dive into the word that's translated hell in our English Bibles, especially in the NIV, right? There's a couple of different words that are translated hell in the King James. Uh, sometimes the, the Hebrew word Sheol in the Old Testament is translated hell in, in older versions of the Bible. Uh, that idea is that Sheol to the Hebrews was just the realm of the dead. It was the place where dead people go. It wasn't necessarily good or bad. It was just the realm of the dead. Um, similarly, in, in the New Testament, the word Hades in some Bible translations is translated hell. And this word Hades is another just reference to the realm of, of the dead. That's where, that's where dead people go, right? It's not specifically talking about what we might picture as hell. And then we did this deep dive last week into this word um, Gehenna, which is in the NIV translated as hell. And it's the word that Jesus uses to describe the place of divine punishment. And we're not going to dive into that. It's a full sermon on that last week. It's up online. Go look at the notes, dig into all those references. Um, But these were the conclusions that we came to last week. First, Jesus was using language that was familiar to the people of his time when he referenced Gehenna. Gehenna was a was a, a valley, a, a place of God's judgment in the Old Testament. It was picked up on. These themes were written about. And so all the people in Jesus' day would have been familiar with this concept of Gehenna. And so we said that hell then, as you read that in the New Testament, this translation of the word Gehenna, needs to be understood as a place of divine punishment. And the imagery of this judgment, and we looked at all kinds of different imagery, uh, eternal fire, fiery furnace, lake of fire, uh, deep darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth, all these types of things, all these images serve as a severe warning to turn from evil because there is punishment that's coming. So we need to take these questions a, a step further and, and, and dive in, like, what is exactly the nature of this divine punishment? Is it eternal? Is it temporary? Is there any punishment at all? All of these questions that we're going to try to wrestle with today. So we're going to start with Matthew chapter 25, verse 31. It says here, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne and all the nations will be gathered before him. 
and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these, my bro- least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Then they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Okay, so we see this scenario here where the Son of Man, uh, the, the Lord of glory, Jesus is coming in his glory with his glorious angels. And it says that all the nations are going to be gathered before him and, and the uh, purpose of this is for judgment, right? He is going to uh, um, judge where these people will end up. And so he separates the people into two groups, one on the right and one on the left. And as we do this, this imagery of as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, right? So this, this idea of separation. The question is, what is the basis for this separation? How is it that this judgment is made, right? Well, the judgment is ba- made based on the treatment of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, right? So... Um, he said, basically, um, I was hungry and you fed me. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. And he goes through this whole list. And they said, well, we've never done this for you, Lord. And he says, if you've done it uh, for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you've done it for me. So this treatment of the least of these. And, and sometimes we think of this passage about, uh, and, and we think about, we see this passage and we think about people who are, are um, poor in this life who are downtrodden, who are on the margins, those kinds of things. And it's like, if you, if you take care of those people, then that is what gets you into the kingdom. That's not exactly the picture here. That's not what Matthew is trying to communicate, all right? Um, we should take care of the poor. We should take care of the needy. This is, this is a given. This is taught in other places in Scripture. But specifically in the book of Matthew, this phrase, the least of these brothers of mine, you'll see it appear a couple of times. And every time that this phrase appears, it speaks to how the disciples, the followers of Jesus were treated. All right? 
So this phrase refers to the disciples or the messengers of Christ. And the question is, how did uh, people in these groups respond to the message of Christ, right? The message of salvation. And the answer can be seen in the way that they treat the messengers, the disciples, the least of these brothers and sisters of mine. If they responded positively to the message, they would have treated the disciples, the followers, the messengers appropriately. But if they responded in, with rejection to the message of Christ, then they also rejected the messengers and did not treat them well, did not welcome the messengers. Do you see where we're going with this, to see what this picture is? And it's not the language we typically read, but this is, this is um, the, the thrust of the passage, right? All right, so they are judged on whether or not they receive the message of Christ, and this is evident in the way that they treat the messengers. This is the picture that's being painted, all right? So there is this division then, this separation. There's those who give a proper response, and those who have improper response. And there's this contrast. It's parallel. It goes kind of back and forth. We can lay them out side by side, right? For those who respond properly, they're told to come, right? This is an invitation for uh, closeness and fellowship and being in the presence of God, right? It says that they're blessed, right? They're spoken well of. Uh, they experience the favor of God. And it says uh, that they inherit the kingdom, right? This is the reign of God. And this idea of inheriting the kingdom is repeated over and over again in the book of Matthew, right? We see this announcement that the kingdom of God is at hand, right? And Jesus is inviting everyone to enter into the reign and rule of God. And he says, so in, they're going to inherit the kingdom, which is prepared since the creation of the world. Now, this is what God intended for all of humanity, right? God, God had a plan from the beginning that we would live uh, with him in communion, in fellowship, under his reign, and rule and reign alongside of him. This was the picture that we've talked about so often in Genesis. And, and so those who respond properly to the message of Christ are invited into the kingdom. But on the other side of those things, we have the people who don't respond properly. Um, they're told, go from me, go away from me, depart. This is the idea of not closeness, but separation. Uh, it says that they are cursed, right? So they're not spoken well of, but, they're, but they've, they've done evil, and so they're condemned. It's, it's not a good scenario. And they're cursed into eternal fire. So not being invited to inherit kingdom, but uh, cursed into eternal fire. And it says that that was prepared for the devil and his angels. And so this is, again, referencing a, a place of punishment that was designed not from the creation of the world. God... God <coughs> um, uh, never wanted human beings in this place, but it was established and, and, and created as a place of punishment for the rebellious angels, all right? So these parallels back and forth. And you get these last two phrases, and it says, so, or then, verse 46, then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. All right? So the idea here is that the, the righteous are going into eternal life and those who are unrighteous are going into eternal punishment. Now, it's important that we understand that the, the same word is used to describe both punishment and life. 
and the word is eternal. So however it is that we're going to define eternal, because very often some, like, it, it's not uncommon for people to say, well, the, the, the Greeks and the Hebrews, they didn't have words that meant forever, like we have a word that just forever, right? For everlasting for all time. They didn't have a word that meant that. They just, um, they had words like in the, in the Old Testament, olam means for a long time. It often gets translated forever because that's the idea behind it, but it just means for a long period of time. And the same in, in the Greek. Um, they'll say that this word for eternal just means a, a long time. So we have to ask ourselves, though, if we're going to interpret this, um, whatever the quality of the life or whatever the duration of the life is also the duration of the punishment, right? You can't in one, in one part say uh, life is eternal, it goes on forever, but punishment, uh, well, that's not eternal, it comes to an end at some point. Right? Like, I think that as we look at this passage, we are getting at that this idea of punishment is, um, is eternal. It goes on and on and on. Okay? So the same word in both instances. All right, we're going to look at one more passage today. I would ask that you turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We're starting with verse 5. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, starting with verse 5. The background here is that the Thessalonians are experiencing lots of persecution. They're um, experiencing lots of tribulation and trials is the idea. And so Paul is writing, them, writing to them to encourage them to stay fast and true and firm. And this is what he says, starting with verse 5, he says this. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you, right? So they're in the midst of this persecution and reminds them a couple of things. He says, first of all, God is just, right? You're experiencing suffering now. Evil people are trying to... Um, destroy you. They're, 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 they're trying to disrupt what you're doing. They're bringing you trouble. But don't worry, God is just. And he says he will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. And he's going to give you relief, right? Those of you who've been suffering at the hands of these evil men, God's going to rescue you. He's going to give you relief, but he's going to pay back trouble to them, right? So there's going to be some affliction. There's going to be some suffering that they're going to endure. He goes on and he says he will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. Now this idea here when we talk about uh, punishment of those who don't know God, the, the word know in the New Testament isn't just like intellectual knowledge. The idea here is those who aren't in fellowship with God. 
it's not just like know about God, but it's like who aren't walking in loving relationship with God, right? This is the picture here. So when you read that word know in the New Testament, it's the idea of talking about relational knowledge, not just intellectual knowledge, right? So these people, they neither know God, they don't have fellowship with God, and they're not obedient, they're not listening to the gospel or the good news of Jesus, right? So this is a group of people who neither um, walk in fellowship with God nor have they accepted the gospel, right? So what about these people? It says of them, or in the NIV here, it starts a new sentence, but we're referring to the same group of people. It says, they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, all right? So how is it that we're supposed to interpret these things, right? Their, their punishment, they, um, we might look at it this way. These people who do not know God and do not obey the gospel will undergo the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, right? Let's track all those words with me together. I'm going to repeat them again. They're not all about up there on the screen together, but they will undergo eternal. Dis- uh, they will undergo the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord. All right, this is the the picture here. Right. All right. So the question is whether or not this word destruction means something like annihilation, like removed from existence, or does it mean something like a state of ruin, like they're in a bad condition. And so I think as we wrestle with the question of universalism that these two passages that speak of eternal punishment and eternal destruction pretty well rule out that everyone is eventually going to turn from evil and turn to God, right? I I think that pretty well rules that out. The question is, is there any support for annihilationism? And again, we could dive, we could spend you know, a year on this and talk about all the different passages and all the different ways to look at this. But I think that this word destruction, especially in this verse, but in other verses as well, uh, speaks of a state of ruin. It doesn't mean removed from existence, but rather they are away from the presence of the Lord. The NIV interprets this a little bit for us and says, shut out from the presence of the Lord. Um, Literally, it just says away from the presence of the Lord and away from his might. This word for destruction is used in other places, like uh, 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul tells the church to turn that uh, person over to Satan because they're in sin, and they ought to confront it, and they turn that person over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. He's not talking about that person being annihilated. He's talking about that, um, the, the power of the flesh being rendered ineffective in that person's life, Right? So I don't think this word destruction requires the definition of annihilation, all right? We're talking about a state or condition that is separate from God. This eternal destruction, this idea of ruin, is that this person is shut out or away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. And this is interesting because, again, if, if you don't know, if you're like me and you don't have the Old Testament memorized, especially the Old Testament in, old, in um, ancient Greek, if you don't have that memorized, you wouldn't pick up on this. And I wouldn't pick up on this. And these are the things I have to like read books to understand, right? But 
But this phrase, away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, is a direct quote from the Greek version of the Old Testament that Paul would have been familiar with and that everyone at that time would have been familiar with, right? And it's, it's a direct quote from Isaiah 2. And it talks about God bringing judgment and people are trying to get away from it, right? And they're, and they're hiding and there's this separation between them and God. And I think that this is the definition of that, of that destruction, that this destruction comes as that person is cut off or shut off from the glory and goodness of God. All right, so let's sum up what we've discussed so far. The nature of divine punishment. First of all, it is just suffering. It is right suffering inflicted for wrongdoing. We all have to wrestle with whether or not we think punishment is moral, right? And we have a judicial system that often functions improperly and is often broken, but I, like deep down in us, there's this moral sense that, that those who do evil should pay. Unfortunately, the reality is I do evil, so I, I should pay. Like, I don't like to think it that way. No, I shouldn't pay, pay for my evil, but you, if you steal from me, you, if you smack me, you should pay, but I shouldn't pay, right? Like, like we at least have this sense of justice when it comes to other people. Um, so then I think that this punishment involves separation from the glory and goodness of God, right? Shut out from the glory of his might. We've discussed this, right? Like God is the source of all good. Remember we talked about the different ways that God reveals himself, and we talked about common grace. And we saw that as Paul was witnessing, he said that um, God hasn't left himself without testimony. He gives you food to eat, and he fills your hearts with joy, right? There are good things that we all experience in the world, and it's not because that the world is just, you know, producing these good things, that these are to be seen as gifts from God. Any love that we experience, any joy that we experience, any peace that we experience here on this earth is ultimately a gift from God, and it's rooted in his goodness. And the idea, I think, what this Thessalonians passage is teaching, that if we reject God, that God will ultimately say, okay, you can have what you want, and he will step back, and we will no longer experience common grace. We will no longer experience that goodness, but we will be in a state of eternal ruin. I think that this is what this passage is teaching. Again, in Matthew 25, the punishment is eternal. Here, the destruction is eternal. The state of ruin is eternal. And so this, as we ask about the nature of punishment, then it just sum up just suffering, separation from the goodness of God, a state of ruin that is eternal, all right? Again, there are lots of other passages that we could talk about and discuss, but we're going we're gonna to sum up there. And we need to ask some follow-up questions about this. First of all, one that comes to my mind is, well, is this compatible with God's love? Like, the Bible says that God is a God of love and mercy and compassion. Remember back in Exodus, right? Um, he reveals himself to Moses. Uh, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love, forgiving the sins. But he also says he will not leave the guilty unpunished. So sometimes it seems like this idea of forgiveness and justice are in tension with one another. Well, I think that we can say a couple of things about this, right? That both God's love 
and his justice are expressions of his righteousness. We, we did a whole sermon on that. So I go, back, go back and find that as we talk about the justice of God. That these two characteristics are not at odds with one another, that they are both expressions of his righteousness, of his right doing and right dealing with the world, right? So I would say this. It would be unloving for God to allow evildoers to continue to destroy creation. You can imagine a, a scenario where you see someone attacking another person. Very often, like, your, your, your instinct is to jump in and stop it, right? And so it would be unloving for God to allow this destruction of creation, this destroying of people's lives. And, and notice I'm using the word destroy not in the sense of annihilation, but in the sense of ruin, right? Um, it would be unloving for God to allow that to continue, for, second, I would say that God has demonstrated his love for us. In this, it's the sacrifice of Jesus to save people from the destruction that sin brings. Like while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. So to say that God bringing punishment is somehow unloving would just completely ignore the idea that he has made a way out of that for us. He has offered us salvation through Jesus Christ and his message. Third, I would say that a loving God is not going to force you into his eternal presence against your will. I've heard someone kind of put it this way. Um, let's say that, ladies, there's a guy who's pursuing you, and he just asks you out, and he asks you out, and he asks you out, and he asks you out, and every time you say, no, I'm not interested, and he just doesn't stop. Does that person love you? Maybe in one sense, but if he really cared about what was good for you and what you wanted, he would leave you alone. This may be a picture here, that while God's heart is for those people to join him in eternity, they have said, no, I'm not interested. And so God just steps back. In Romans 1, we saw this, right? For the wrath of God is being revealed on all unrighteousness. And we read through that whole passage. And how was God's judgment given? It says three times, God handed them over. God handed them over. God handed them over, right? Part of God's judgment and wrath is stepping back and letting us to reap the consequences of our decisions. And if we reject the source of life and the source of goodness, then the eternal state is just the opposite of that. All right? So... No, I don't think this is, this is incompatible with God's love. Well, another set of questions arise then. Is this somehow compatible with God's justice? You might ask this question. Does temporary sin justify eternal punishment? Does our temporary sin justify eternal punishment? And I might look at my list of sins and go, I've not really been that bad in my life, right? Like, does it really deserve eternal punishment? Um, we might even look at people who've committed atrocities in the course of human history. People like Stalin and, and Mao and, and those, those people and say, well, they did some really bad things for a very long time on the earth, but does that really justify punishment for eternity? How, how might we respond to that question? Well, first of all, I think we all just need to recognize that we tend to downplay the magnitude of our sin. Like, whenever I commit evil or think evil in my heart, 
uh, it's not that bad to me. You know, it's excusable. I've got, a, I've got a good excuse. This is actually psychologists studied this. It's called fundamental attribution error. So when I look at all your bad stuff and I say, you've got a bad character, I attribute it to your bad motives. But whenever I do something wrong, I go, well, I've got good reasons I did that, right? Like, um, like we tend to downplay the magnitude of our sins. Our God is infinitely holy and just. And to reject him is to reject, is to reject infinite holiness. We need to take our sins seriously. The other thing that this assumes is that sin stops in eternity. But if this view of rejection of God and eternal separation is, is, is close to it, then there's no guarantee that the rejection of God simply stops when a person receives that punishment. It could be that if this rejection of God continues, then then the punishment is, is continually there because the rejection never stops. And so that punishment then would not be unjust. It's interesting when you look at, uh, the, there's one parable that, that we haven't covered yet. It's Luke chapter 16, it's the rich man and Lazarus. And Lazarus, um, he dies and he goes to Abraham's side. And the rich man who had basically ignored Lazarus all his life, he ends up in Hades and he's suffering agony in fire, is, is the imagery that's used there, right? He's being punished. Um, not once does he say, I'm sorry for what I did. And it's a, it's a, we have to be careful because it's a parable, and we, we, we don't want to um, draw too much out of it. We're just kind of like look at the main point. But not once does he say, this is unjust, or I shouldn't be here, or you should let me out, or anything like that. He, he kind of like demands, Lazarus, you come help me, right? Or go do this for me, Lazarus, right? But there, there's no picture that, that these people who are under this punishment are actually repentant for what they've done. They might continue in a state of rejection and so therefore warrant this punishment. They go on hating God for eternity and God's not going to force them into his presence. You might also ask the question, well, like, you know, it doesn't seem like obvious that all sin is the same. Yes, sin is sin, but there seem to be that, it seems to be that there are some sins that are more heinous or cruel than others, right? So are there degrees of punishment? Would it be just of God to, to punish everyone the same? I think there's some passages that, that might give us a clue. Where the, this is not like super clear, but would give us some understanding of this. Uh, Jesus talks about the, the servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants. He says that servant will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving of punishment will be beaten with few blows. For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked, right? So this is Luke 12, 47 and 48. And this seems to be this idea that, that if, if you are like at a, at a space where um, you're committing these heinous atrocities, there, there might be these levels or degrees of punishment and suffering. Passages like Matthew chapter 10, verse 15, uh, Matthew 11, verses 22, 24, talk about cities and God says of these cities it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those cities, right? So however this plays out, I, I can't tell you. I, I don't know. But 
what I think this teaches is that God is just and he will give the appropriate level of punishment, whatever that happens to be, all right? The last question that I kind of want to touch on today is, is this compatible with the idea of heaven, with what the Bible teaches about heaven? Like, heaven is supposed to be this place of life and joy where um, God's eternal goodness just continues forever. And so this idea of people being punished forever, is that that's somehow incongruent? And, and I think what the Bible teaches about this is that even when God punishes evil, his glory is still somehow shown. The glory of his righteousness and his justice and love is seen in the punishment of evil, right? It would be unloving for God to continue to allow people to, do, to attack each other and destroy each other. It would be unjust for God not to punish evil, right? So in this idea then that when God punishes, that it magnifies his righteousness, both his love and justice. And I think there are clues to this in Romans chapter 9. Um, in verse 17, he talks about Pharaoh and how God raises him up so that he could display his power and that his name would be proclaimed. And, and in verse 22, it says that what if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction, right? So this is the idea that God, God's longing was that for everyone to be saved, but, but ultimately there, there's a, a world in which like, people just reject him and God is patient with them, but ultimately he shows his power and his justice in judging them rightly. All right? There's another insight that I think we get as we read uh, the writer C.S. Lewis. He has this book uh, called the, the Great Divorce. And it's, it's, I would encourage you to read it. It's, it's not a like, like perfect picture of uh, judgment and punishment in heaven, but it gets to like the human condition and the realities of the heart. And so it, it might be a place to start. And, and there's this phrase in here that uh, Lewis uses, and it basically says that God is not going to give evil veto power over joy, right? This is the idea that I think like those who are in eternal fellowship with heaven will be some way shielded from the idea of eternal punishment, and I don't know what that's going to look like. But they're, they're not, I don't think you're going to be in eternity grieving the, the, the loss or grieving the punishment. And I don't know how that's going to work, work out. I, I'm not saying that I do, but, but I think ultimately um, God is able to sort these things out for us. Because in Revelation 21, we're told that as, as God sets up his reign on earth, and again, that's the picture of heaven, right? Not heaven up there somewhere and not hell down there somewhere. That's, that's not the picture that the Bible paints. God um, makes his dwelling on earth, that we would be his people and that he would be our God, and he will be with us. And it says, in his kingdom, there'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things is gone, and all things are made new, right? This is, this is the picture of heaven, being in the presence of God. And that's what makes heaven, heaven. This is the eternal life that you would know him, the Father, and the one he has sent, right? It's not about living in the clouds somewhere. And so... Hell or divine punishment on the other end is a separation from that. So we may not fully comprehend 
what that's going to be like, either heaven or hell, divine punishment. But, you know, there's a whole lot of things that I'm not going to fully comprehend on this earth. I can understand them to some degree, and I may not fully understand them. There's just one more thing that we've got to touch on as we wrap this up. As with the problem of evil, there's the intellectual side and there's the emotional side of this, right? I spent a great deal of time today talking about the intellectual side of things. And if this sounds callous or academic or analytical, that's, that's not the intent. Like, we have to recognize that we are talking about uh, the eternal destinies of people, ourselves and the people that we love. And we need to take this seriously, and it's one of the reasons I go into analytical mode, because I want to get to the truth. Because truth is truth, whether I like it or not. And very often, people don't like this idea of hell, and they end up rejecting God and not thinking through it. We have to think it through, but we also need to speak to the emotional side of things. And these are some of the things that I, I think I would add. Um, you know, as we wrestled with the problem of evil, they're all different responses that we talked about. All those are applicable. Go back and, and, and dig through those. But I would add a couple of things. First of all, just a reminder that God doesn't take pleasure in the death of the wicked. His desire is that we repent, turn from sin, turn to him, and be saved. That we would enter into life. God desires that all people would be saved. In fact, it's one of the reasons that judgment is delayed. Like, there's this, there's this group of Christians, Peter writes to them, and he says, you guys are wondering why the Lord hasn't showed up yet. And he's saying, God is patient. God is showing kindness. God is waiting. He's giving opportunity for repentance. That's why the judgment hasn't come yet. Like, God doesn't take joy in the death of the wicked. We see the attitude of Jesus toward the leaders of Jerusalem, the, the people who rejected him. He's like, how often have I longed to gather you as a, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings? Like, I, I long for you, but he says, you would have none of it. You wouldn't have it. And he mourns over their obstinance in the Gospel of Matthew. Also, we see Paul in Romans 9. He expresses great sorrow and unceasing anguish as he thinks about the unbelief of the Jews, the way that the Jews have rejected Christ. And he says, I wish that I could be accursed for them. Like, I wish I could take their place. Wow, that, that's some deep sorrow, right? And I think that we ought to grieve the fate of those who continue to reject God. It's not something that we gloat over. It's not something that we rejoice about. It's not something that, that we feel prideful, that we've got it figured out, and they don't. That is not the place of the believer in Christ. We should long for them to be rescued from the consequences of the evil that they commit. It's not because we're somehow good that we're going to go to heaven. It's only because of the goodness of Christ. And so as we think about those who are lost, we ought to grieve and mourn. Take seriously the reality of divine punishment. All right, so this has been a lot. I know I've talked for a long time. Um, we're going to summarize this now. What is the nature of this divine punishment? Well, it's important that we understand that God is just. That whatever punishment he gives will be shown to be right. That he has shown himself to be good. He's shown himself to be merciful. He's shown himself to be loving. While we were sinners, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that Christ died for us. Right? So we can trust that 
ultimately, whatever it is that God does is right. We can trust his wisdom, his plans, and his purposes. I think scripture teaches that those who do not turn from evil are going to experience punishment, and that includes eternal separation from the glory and goodness of God. All right? It's eternal ruin, eternal destruction, eternal punishment are those phrases that we saw today. And so we need to take the warnings about this punishment seriously, and we need to turn from evil. Like, there's a reason Jesus compares this punishment to eternal fire, outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Like, our sin matters. The evil that we do is destructive. And if we don't turn, we will pay for it. We ought to grieve those who reject God's love displayed in the sacrifice of Jesus. And this ought to motivate us to share the good news of salvation with those around us who need to hear that God seeks to save the lost. From creation, we were designed to be with him forever. And when mankind rejected God, God set out on a rescue mission. And Jesus, God in the flesh, entered into life and he suffered and died on the cross so that we could be bought back, so that we could be redeemed. And this is the message that we offer the world because we look at the brokenness, we look at the evil in our hearts and go, what a wretched man am I? How can I be saved? And the answer is there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. Amen. That Jesus wants to set us free from sin and judgment and death. And instead, he wants us to walk in eternal life. So if you're in this place and you're not with God, and your experiences and the consequences of not being with God, I would plead with you, turn to him. Because one day there will be a day of judgment and there will be a day of punishment where God steps back completely and says, have it your way. But if you will humble yourself, if you will repent and you will turn and cry out for help, the God of heaven, the God of the universe, the God who made the world will come into your life and he will transform you. And you will experience the love and the joy and the peace and the grace of the creator of all things. Would you pray with me today? Father God, I want to thank you for this opportunity to study deeply your word. Lord, I pray that we would not treat it lightly, nor we would treat it without understanding of the ramifications. God, we wrestle both with the truth, but also our emotions. And God, I pray that you would lead us into truth and that you would reveal your heart to us. God, we come to you humbly, knowing that we're sinners, and we pray the prayer that we see, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. God, we thank you that there is life in Jesus Christ, and that you offer us hope, not only conquering death, but the the, the conquering of all evil in the world, where we could experience eternal blessing and joy in your presence. God, we want to be with you. And God, I pray that you would help us to boldly proclaim the good news of Jesus so that those we love, the people around us, would be with you as well. God, do your work by your spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.